Christian Walmart, and this is the Calling All Stations podcast. And indeed, this week, we really are calling all stations, given the devastating news that under Tory plans, virtually all the booking offices in England will be closed. And that's going to actually change the very way that people use the railways. So obviously, we're going to discuss that in some detail. But Mark, we've got some other things on the agenda as well, haven't we? Yes. Hello. Uh, this is Mark Walker joining Christian on the Calling All Stations podcast. And we also have this week a very interesting cab ride that Christian did with Mark Hopwood, the managing director of Great Western Railway between London and Oxford, that uh, raised some very interesting issues about rolling stock, infrastructure investment, and integration with other forms of public transport. And getting away from railways completely, we'll be taking a look at this week's agreement in the International Maritime Organization on steps to reduce over time the volume of uh, carbon dioxide emissions from the merchant shipping industry. But yes, first, it's we obviously have to uh, focus on uh, this really amazing news. And I was very taken by the fact uh, that you know, there is universal criticism of this plan across the industry. And yes, you know, whereas the rail delivery group, which represents the only group, says publicly, oh, this is uh, you know, their consultation and so on, privately, when you talk to anybody in the rail industry, they think this is an absolutely disastrous suggestion. And the idea really seems to be closing, you know, all but just a, a handful of ticket office on some lines. On some other lines, they're kind of keeping uh, more open. But for example, there was a real suggestion that they would close Euston and Birmingham New Street. Now, I think that that's just a ploy and that eventually they'll say, no, no, of course we're keeping Euston and Birmingham New Street open, um, you know, and they'll just use that to disguise the fact that actually most of the closures are going ahead. But yeah, I noticed that uh, Michael Holden, who has run various uh, train companies over the over time, and you know, is by no means one of the usual suspects to criticise uh, the way the railways are operated. Uh, you know, he's quite a fan of privatisation stuff. But he said uh, in a tweet that he thought that this really meant that the government. And he did actually cite both Number Ten and the Treasury and the Department for Transport have just really shown no interest in the railways at all, and you know are effectively going to uh, destroy them by doing this. And I wrote a piece in the Independent, rather jokingly, saying, "Well, uh, you know what they're trying to do is ensure that nobody uses the railways, because of course we." Uh, we actually broke the news a few weeks ago about the fact that they want to take Wi-Fi off trains, saving actually very little money, but kind of inconveniencing passengers. But now they've really gone the whole hog and they're really going to uh, work at deterring people from using the railways because there's two aspects to this, Mark. There's not just the actual fact of it itself and you know that it is totally kind of ridiculous to just make the whole railway system less accessible and less easy to use. 
But there is the very fact that they're prepared to do something like this, which I think is is actually, uh, you know, does show basic contempt for the railways because the, the, the image it projects is really don't use the railways. We don't really want you. You're an inconvenience. You know, it's a pain in the neck selling tickets to you and providing a service. And we're going to provide the absolute minimum service that are required all in the interest of trying to save money. But you know, they'll save very little money in relation to uh, the overall cost of the railway. Well, well, shall, we, shall we test some of the arguments then, Chris? Yes. Because um, we hopefully are, are, are dealing with rational people here, uh, rational people in the form of, of ministers, the Department for Transport and the train operating companies, which are running the individual consultations across most of England on these measures. So what do you say to the point that um, 90% of tickets um, and something like 80% of, 87%, I think it is, of um, passenger revenue is generated through sales, not at ticket offices. And therefore, uh, the the need for the ticket offices has evaporated. Well, uh, first of all, that represents something like 150 to 200 million transactions a year. So that's by no means insignificant. Rather interesting that uh, when Hugh Merriman, the rail minister, answered these questions, he said, oh, yes, they only represent 10 percent of uh, the uh, number of transactions, but 13 percent of revenue. In other words, uh, that these are kind of high value transactions which is often quite complex, you know, people going to two or three destinations, people buying multi-tickets for lots of uh, a group of people or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's the, the difficult transactions that uh, obviously you need the ticket offices for. And I mean, I use ticket offices quite a lot because I have a, a rail card and I use, um, I, I often leave London and you have to buy a, a ticket from Zone Six because it's free because I uh, the, in London it's free because uh, you know I I have uh, uh, a free travel inside the uh, uh, London boundary and so it's a slightly complex transaction so I use ticket offices a lot and I'm sure there's lots of people in my position as well people with disabilities uh, people who are buying privileged tickets I mean. Well, what do you say then? What do you say then to the argument that people with protected characteristics, including disabilities, will find it more useful to have staff uh, outside of the ticket office, not behind a, a glass screen, able to help them with their with advice and with purchasing tickets from machines? Look, there's no doubt Mark, that there will be a few places where, yes, maybe it's quite a good idea to get people. Uh, you know, out of the offices. But you only have to look at, you know, even kind of moderately uh, big places. I don't know. I've seen pictures from Stoke and from York and from uh, Darlington and various places like that, where, you know, there's literally queues of people uh, trying to, to buy tickets from ticket offices. And we know that somebody standing outside with only access to a machine uh, will not have the range of ticket options that uh, somebody uh, behind the, uh, in, a, in an office, you know, with a, a, a computer and everything else. Now, 
So if they were saying, well, we, we want people kind of, you know, to help the ticket office and, and work outside some of the time and so on, that might be kind of feasible. But to have this blanket closure is uh, you know, undoubtedly nothing to do with the idea of providing a, a, a better service. Look, Mark, you know, we, we could have had this discussion, you know, or they could have had this discussion years ago. You know, this had been an industry privatised a quarter of a century ago and run by private companies and all that time who, who pay for the ticket office is and the ticket office clerks and whatever. And they could have said ages ago, well, we're going to close a few because we'll save money and we'll try and get these people out and so on. And they have, would have had a commercial imperative to do that because they would have saved money. Yet they haven't done so. You know, very few ticket offices have been closed. They've kept uh, essentially the, the same system that they inherited. And there's a good reason for that, which is that actually, despite the reduction in use, there's still an important role for these ticket offices. I think it's important that we point out to our listeners that these consultations do not apply to uh, passenger operators that are under the control of the Scottish government or the Welsh government. They don't apply to the Merseyrail network, which is under the control of the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority and the Mayor there. And as far as I understand it, they don't apply to uh, rail heavy rail businesses controlled by the Mayor of London, so um, London Overground and the Elizabeth Line. Though, ironically, what they do echo was a, 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 a system introduced on London Underground several years ago, whereby the booking offices there all were closed. Um, but of course, London Underground has a very different kind of ticketing system, doesn't it, Christian? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, look, you know, it's pretty simple. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have the sort of complex demands that uh, you do have on the National Rail Network. And uh, it has actually resulted in some places essentially being unstaffed during operating hours, uh, uh, even though they promised at the time that it, that it wouldn't. Um, and I think it's ludicrous that, you know, they closed the ticket offices at places like uh, St Pancras, St King's Cross or Euston or whatever, really major places, Piccadilly Circus, where, you know, you really need somebody to be helping the, the, the kind of income and the tourists and, and the, the people just arriving. Um, and I think that's caused a, a, a lot of hassle. And so, you know, I do worry that, yes, Peter Hendy, who actually uh, was uh, the transport commissioner in London at the time, oversaw this closure, uh, which incidentally, Boris Johnson had promised uh, what, during his election campaign that he wouldn't do this, but he then actually closed all the ticket offices. And Peter Hendy, of course, is now chairman of Network Rail and presumably has kind of acquiesced in, in this process, although it'd be good to actually find out whether he has or not. I just think it is devastating. I, I, I just think that, you know, it is a, a way of deterring people using the railways. I can't see it in any other uh, way, really. Christian, you've been travelling on part of England's rail network this week, haven't you? Uh, yes, indeed. This was uh, just actually before the uh, announcement. But I had a cab ride with uh, Mark Hopwood, who's uh, run Great Western uh, Railway for 
several years, a long-time uh, railway man, who actually has done a very good job in, I think, protecting uh, Great Western services uh, during the, the recent troubles and crisis and the other crisis they had with uh, the uh, problems with the new rolling stock when they found cracks and so on. Um, you know, and he's somebody who really, as we see in this interview, really cares about the railways. And uh, indeed, as you will hear also, um, is very intent on uh, pushing the old concept of integrated transport, which, you know, Mark is a long-time transport watcher. Uh, you must have uh, remembered the heavy use of the expression integrated transport, which has rather fallen out of favour. So, uh, you know, here is uh, the story of my cab ride with him. I'm with uh, Mark Hopwood, the Managing Director of uh, Great Western Trains, and we're on a cab ride heading off for Oxford and leaving Paddington. And uh, Mark, this is one of the most complex areas of the railways in Britain, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Christian, and uh, welcome along to the footplate. We've got 13 platforms at Paddington that uh, come down into six bi-directional approach lines. Um, we're using uh, all of those pretty much uh, all the time. And we're just leaving Paddington now. We've currently got a clear signal. You could hear the TBWS ping in the background. We're passing Royal Oak, which is the uh, Hammersmith and City line. We've got a couple of our trains here, stabled uh, Intercity Express train and one of our suburban trains. But just on the, the right-hand side, Christian, you can see the Elizabeth line beginning to emerge from its tunnel. It's obviously a big investment, big bit of infrastructure, and those tracks will join uh, up with our bit of railway further up uh, here at uh, Westbourne Park. And I, I notice on the uh, signals there's these great big boards numbered one, two, three, four, etc. And that was a result of the Labrick Grove uh, train accident, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and the result of other work that's gone on to really uh, recognise that we need to make sure these signals are clear and visible, particularly here where we've got bi-directional signalling on all, on all six lines and trains can use each of the lines uh, in either direction and approach in parallel. And we've, we've got a single yellow signal, so we're just slowing uh, down uh, here at uh, Sierra November 8-3 uh, signal. But you can see on the, the right-hand side the junctions for the uh, Elizabeth line. Um, it's a little bit busy, there's a little bit of uh, congestion outside the station, but uh, hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be on the move soon. Because ideally we're, we're in the front of a uh, Hitachi train and we'd like to be uh, uh, buzzing along. But uh, tell me what, what the difference the Elizabeth line has made, because uh, obviously that was some services that you used to operate and now they're run by uh, TfL. Yeah, so all of the uh, suburban services, apart from two trains an hour, have moved across from Great Western to TfL. They're run by MTR, who have that concession, um, and they've been combined with things like the Heathrow Connect services. So there's now 10 trains an hour coming uh, up the relief line. They head into the tunnel, and they then combine uh, with uh, about another 10 trains that start in the sidings. Of Westbourne Park to give that very intensive service through central London. So obviously it's given those people a, a through train into central London but also improved, massively improved the connectivity uh, of the uh, uh, journey for all our customers. Has that made your job easier or more difficult? Um, well it's much better for our customers, it obviously makes the railway busier which brings some 
challenges, but it's something we massively welcome. I think we're uh, heading up towards uh, Old Oak Common uh, soon. Yeah, so um, we're uh, leaving London. On the left-hand side is the approach tracks into the Hitachi Depot at North Pole, where we maintain these trains. On the right-hand side, the tracks into the Elizabeth Line Depot at Old Oak Common, uh, but also the massive, massive construction site for um, HS2, who are turning an old railway depot and sidings into what's going to be one of the biggest stations in uh, in London. Right, I can just see uh, 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 some some of the work uh, uh, coming up. So, uh, uh, I know we'll um, we'll talk again um, uh, near uh, uh, Reading and Oxford. Thank you. So, uh, just uh, coming up to Twyford Station. Uh, Twyford's the last station before Reading. You can see lots of people there getting uh, on the diesel service that's running to Henley on Thames. Henley Regatta in full flow uh, started uh, on Wednesday, uh, takes us through to Sunday. Big event, lots of passengers to carry. Um, we passed through the curves at Twyford at 125 miles an hour thanks to the great work of Mr. Reese, who uh, uh, was the civil engineer on the Great Western. Uh, in BR days in the uh, 1970s and we're now in Sonning Cutting. Uh, Sonning Cutting is um, you know, another uh, iconic uh, piece of the railway here uh, on Great Western and um, we're slowing down uh, the drivers preparing for the approach into Reading. We are currently running under clear signals. Reading station benefited from enormous investment last decade, a billion pounds was spent to build a number of additional platforms and to give us uh, a much better layout with the flexibility we need and the ability to have two trains in the station using each of the lines at the, um, at the same time. So we'll be approaching uh, Reading uh, very soon. So um, generally, I, uh, just traveling through uh, to, to Reading fast uh, on green signals or whatever, the state of the infrastructure seems pretty good actually. Yeah, there's been there's been some investment. I think Network Rail have had some challenges with reliability between Paddington and Reading, but um, yeah, we we've obviously benefited from that investment and we're um, we're pleased about that. And that electrification uh, obviously a few years ago but has made a big difference. Yeah, I mean every train that we're running now is running on electric traction apart from uh, one train each way for the Greenford branch that comes from Reading and our overnight sleeper train to Penzance. We do have the ability to run on diesel occasionally when it happens, but generally the intercity trains are running on electric traction and our suburban trains are on electric traction. And of course the Elizabeth line is entirely electric, so um, it's only the freight trains left. Um, and Network Rail are seeking uh, approval to electrify the Acton Bank which will link Great Western with the North London line and that will start to open up the options for freight to be uh, electrically hauled as well. Okay and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to head towards Oxford uh, where the electrification uh, runs out after Didcot and uh, we'll talk about it then. Thank you. We're at uh, Reading Station now where our driver Sean who's worked for the railways for the last 30 years is going to leave us and we're going to get a different driver to take us to Oxford. 
And now we're just uh, pulling away from uh, Reading Station with our new driver, Craig. And uh, Mark, this is a lot of uh, new infrastructure here, isn't it? Yeah, this is another part of the big investment we saw at Reading. There's a new maintenance depot and sidings on our right-hand side, but we're just going onto the flyover. We're going to climb uh, up to uh, the top of the flyover, and that then allows these trains to head over the tracks that serve Newbury and Basingstoke. And while our passengers were getting on and off the train in Reading, actually a freight train had come uh, on that route underneath the flyover, and it was able to um, make that move uh, without conflicting with our train, and that's the sort of benefit that we've seen. And uh, uh, well, we can see the tracks over there. Now, in the absolutely. old days, these these used to be at le the same level, didn't they? A absolutely. And yeah. there is a freight train on the what we call the Reading West curve. Um, so that's one of the freight freightliner trains. Again, that's um, that would have conflicted with this train uh, if we'd have been here sort of 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, but that train can operate uh, from you know Manchester to Southampton round the curve at Reading without interfering with our trains at all, which is uh, which is a great thing. Yeah, this uh, must have cost a lot of money. I do remember that uh, there was a, a lot of pictures about them dropping in the, the, the bridge onto this, wasn't yeah, there? It was yeah. quite a, a famous bit yeah, of engineering. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big engineering project and actually delivered uh, on time and under budget, which um, is not something you always say about projects. And it's a... Uh, it's greatly improved your reliability, presumably. Yeah, it's made a big difference. I mean, Reading was a big problem, big log jam, and now we've just got so much more flexibility and yeah, passengers really enjoying the, uh, the benefits of that. Great, thank you. Uh, so, Christian, we're uh, heading along at 124 miles an hour on the Down Main Line, just passing Goring and Streetly uh, Station, which is uh, famous as the, the last residence of George Michael, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, we're approaching the next station at Cholsey. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have an electrified railway to Oxford, so we're going to have to complete the last part of the journey on diesel power. And uh, our driver, Craig, in just a moment, is going to initiate a process where we um, have started up the diesel engines. We asked the train to lower the pantograph and switch the power to diesel. But unlike what used to happen, you know, on things like Class 73 locos on the southern region many years ago, we do it all on the move. Uh, and we'll be doing it at line speed at uh, just under 125 um, miles an hour. Uh, as we head towards the junction at Digcot where we have to cross uh, from the main to the relief line and then onto the curve that takes us towards Oxford. So that's extraordinary. You actually change over the power system at 125 miles an hour? Yes. And that has to be initiated by the driver? That's right, yeah. And what would happen if you forgot to do that? Uh, we do have something called a Belize. Uh, I mean, I have to say the drivers have never forgotten to do it. They're very professional, but we uh, have a Belize on the line that would um, automatically lower the pantograph and uh, before it gets to the next structure, but it wouldn't do it in a controlled way. We wouldn't have the diesel engines ready for that. Right. So the driver's just uh, pressing the button now for diesel. Uh, you can just hear the click uh, in the background, um, so the diesels are being primed, the pantograph is lowered and the train uh, is now running uh, on diesel power. It's, it's one button in the cab, uh, very little 
uh, to see or feel. The customers uh, are happily uh, playing around with their phones, reading their papers, completely oblivious, uh, but we've moved, made the move at uh, just about 120 miles an hour. And we're now slowing down. Um, we can see the restrictive signals ahead as we approach the junction at Dickcott and we'll be leaving the uh, main line at this point. And this is because we have to cross over uh, the uh, other main line and uh, the up line and then the two relief lines uh, in order to uh, get across to, towards Oxford. That's right. Um, and tell me, they, they were going to electrify all the way to Oxford, but, but what happened to that plan? Uh, they ran out of money, the project was suspended, it's still suspended but unlikely as far as I can see in the current environment to, uh, to proceed. Uh, but they actually put the masts up? Yep, we'll see once we pass Digcot you'll see evidence of quite a lot of the electrification work that has been abandoned and left by the side of the railway, including foundations and some of the masts. Okay, thank you. We're now at uh, Digcot Station which has become an increasingly busy uh, railway hub. And in particular, there's been a lot of work on integrating bus and rail services, hasn't there, Mark? Yeah, and uh, here at Digcot Parkway, we've got a very close collaboration between ourselves as the train operator and um, the local bus company, which is, is Thames Travel as part of the Go Ahead group. Um, we've seen a lot of house building um, in this part of Oxfordshire. The housing developers, uh, as part of their uh, approvals process, have had to commit to underwrite bus services in this area for, for three years, um, in some cases um, slightly longer. Um, and Digcot has seen a massive growth in bus services and buses being operated on quite regular frequencies. So uh, buses in the town now operating on some routes up to every 15 minutes. We also have three um, big towns in this area, three of the biggest towns on Great Western that don't have a railway station. So that's Abingdon, Wantage and Wallingford and they're served by good quality buses and they all congregate in the station forecourt. We redeveloped the station a few years ago, moved the taxis into what was a car park um, and we've cleared the station forecourt for the bus operation. Um, we've got four bus bays um, and it means that the bus interchange with the train is really easy, it's really simple. And for those people that have been out to Switzerland or to the Netherlands and seen the way that public transport is integrated there, I've really modelled what we did here at Digker on that sort of Swiss or Dutch model. Um, and I think the customers appreciate that. We're seeing an increasing number of our customers here at Digcot using uh, the bus to get to the train to travel on to Oxford or to Reading or to London. Uh, and that's uh, important. And obviously we want to be part of the story um, that makes it possible for people to make those journeys to integrate the uh, methods of transport and we're pleased with the result. It's fair to say actually that not every train company does this and a lot of this has come from maybe your own personal initiative and you said to me that uh, you've actually employed somebody full-time on the railway bus integration so so this is much come from you really? Well I, I, I don't think I'd want to take all the credit for it we've got a very very good 
uh, bus company in Thames Travel that's part of the Oxford Bus Company. Um, the current managing director and the previous managing director both, I think, committed to this cause as well. Um, we've had some fantastic support from the local authority, from Oxfordshire, who have helped to fund some of the work, uh, as well as some of it coming from our own business. And it's similar to the cooperation that we're seeing um, in Devon. Um, and uh, Andrea Davis in Devon, who leads the transport portfolio, has personally um, worked hard on this with us. Uh, but I guess, if I'm honest, we haven't seen the same level of enthusiasm, support, funding and energy across across our patch. So while I use the examples of Switzerland and Netherlands, I guess the difference is they have a, a consistent approach nationally the, that requires that to happen. Here in the UK we're seeing some excellent examples when you get people who want to do this, who want to make it happen. We've, we've done some good work. We've also in Devon um, following the opening of the line to Oakhampton, we've agreed to restructure some of the buses to actually shorten some of the bus routes and bring them into Oakhampton and then put people onto the train into Exeter because that reduces the amount of mileage that the local authority is having to subsidise on the, on the bus network So, and, and helps save the money at a time where funding is, um, is short. So um, we're keen to look at all sorts of different solutions and yeah we're proud of what's been achieved here the customers seem to like it um, not just people who live in this area but actually people who work places like Harwell Science and Research Park uh, Milton Park which is a big business park here they're arriving from places like Reading um, and Swindon on the train and then using the bus to get to um, get to their office or their um, uh, place of work. So um, some good results coming through. But no, you make an interesting point. Would it, would it help if there was legislation to, to kind of encourage this type of uh, uh, integration or does it just need Department for Transport to be active in it, helping fund it? Or what, how could one bring about more integration across the country? Well, I, I think uh, many people are aware that the legislation changed around how bus services are provided uh, recently. And that does require local authorities to put together um, local transport plans. Um, and the local transport plans require uh, content in them on bus rail integration. Uh, I think we, we probably do need to do more on that. And I think um, uh, trying to uh, make sure that everywhere has got a good quality plan and that it, it does make sure that things like bus and rail are coming together but sometimes you know the local authorities just don't have the the funding and if if you're in a rural area it can be quite difficult if there's no funding and no case for running things commercially and there isn't i mean we've tapped into private sector money from places like housing developers who were very keen to get their housing developments approved and were quite happy to include money in their submission for bus services. Um, if you don't have some of those hooks, it is, it is more difficult. Uh, so we, we've just passed the Christian through Cullum station, uh, Science Park there, quite a busy part of Oxfordshire. We've just um, had a speed restriction warning sign, the driver's slowing down for 50 miles an hour because we're approaching 
the Newnham Viaduct which led to this line closing at the very beginning of April. It was shut for 10 weeks while the viaduct was completely reconstructed by Network Rail on the south side with a new bridge parapet uh, and that followed the, the deterioration of the structure uh, which had been happening through the early part of this year and led to the line closing and you can see ahead of us uh, fresh, freshly laid ballast and new track that was laid and the crane from the reconstruction work still visible on our left hand side so we're just about to pass over the river Thames um, the new structure underneath us on the south side um, and the railway of course reopened uh, about uh, three weeks ago so so they they didn't rebuild a whole bridge they just repaired it did they also yeah, the deck is the same deck um, but the entire parapet so that's the all the supporting structure underneath on the south side of the river was uh, taken down completely uh, new foundation steel sheeting uh, into the uh, riverbed and the embankment and then uh, the bridge was uh, was put back um, and they delivered it to the timescales they told us obviously disappointed that happened in the first place but a lot of effort went in to give us the railway back were, were you surprised that you know a viaduct had deteriorated to that extent without being noticed yeah i think in fairness they they knew there was a challenge it had been sinking about a millimeter a year but it's still not entirely clear why the rate of deterioration uh, increased so quickly at the at the end of that process um, but yeah it has led to uh, network rail looking i think at some of their structures uh, nationally and on the route uh, i guess the important thing is we've, we've got it back so did, did it uh, cause you much disruption yeah it's caused a lot of disruption i mean for great western uh, we couldn't run any trains to oxford and the cotswold line from london so it's buses from Dinkert to oxford or using the chiltern railway service that runs from Marlborough. Uh, into Oxford and approaches from the north and all the freight traffic had to divert via uh, London uh, which caused disruption and the cross-country trains were chopped in half with a bus from Didcot to Oxford so uh, a lot of disruption. And uh, did you have to cancel trains as well or did you get bus replacement services for everything? Well we put in a new timetable yeah with those trains obviously not not running and um, buses had to fill in the gap that the trains couldn't uh, couldn't serve. Did uh, Do you think passengers understood that this was a sort of you know one-off uh, kind of issue and, and didn't get too cross about it or was there a lot of uh, anger about it? There certainly wasn't a lot of anger I think it is obviously annoying for people when journeys are extended they have to get off trains and onto buses but uh, I spent time at Digcock looking uh, after customers and um, most people seem pretty understanding uh, but obviously it's not the sort of thing that we want happening um, we, we loaded up a timetable everyone understood what was going on uh, but much better to get get the work done and have the railway back and uh, now it's back to normal is it absolutely back to normal the 50 mile an hour speed is just there while the track settles in but we're hoping that our rail will lift that in the next few days great okay well thank you mark it's been an absolutely fascinating uh time going up and down your railway and i've learned an extraordinary amount and um maybe we'll do it again sometime thanks a lot mark thank you thanks for joining us very interesting trip christian what are your top takeaways from your cab ride well, a couple of things there. I mean, the whole completely insane 
situation we have where you know we have a half electrified railway and as a result of that uh, they actually have to run uh, a, a split service to uh, between london and, and oxford because they use partly electric trains and partly non-electric trains um, and you know we've got the site of these posts that were actually put up there and then they abandoned uh, or at least postponed the electrification program absolutely uh, nuts and then I thought that the, the, the thing at the end is, is really important, you know, linking uh, buses and uh, railways is so important. And yet um, in most of the country, you know, despite the fact that even at times some of the private train operators also ran local bus services and yet didn't kind of run them into each other. And, you know, there, there were at the time ridiculous competition rules which have so somewhat been weakened to stop kind of you know, the very notion of integrated transport. And I think uh, that was an important takeaway that you know, Great Western has done a lot. They even employ somebody full time to work on uh, transport integration, which I think should be copied elsewhere. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, uh, just something that, you know, we don't cover enough, Mark, uh, which is shipping. And I was just happened to notice that the International Maritime Organization uh, had a two-week meeting banging together 175 uh, different countries. Um, and they did manage to get some measures through about reducing the carbon footprint of the world shipping, which accounts for two and a half, three percent of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the world, which is, uh, you know, pretty kind of important. And although they tried, or some governments tried to get a levy imposed on shipping, they didn't manage that. But they nevertheless have a, a, a commitment to try to reduce the carbon intensity. In other words, the amount of carbon per container or whatever uh, by 40% from 2008 to 2030 and there's some way there already and the, our own government is also uh, trying to kind of uh, work in this field and has just allocated another 34 million pounds of grants to various organisations who are trying to reduce uh, the uh, carbon footprint of shipping that brings up to nearly 200 million pounds they've spent on this. I don't think we hear enough about this. And I actually think that, uh, you know, it's something that really ought to be looked at more and ought to be more high, high profile. So an interesting issue that we should return to at some point. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod. Pod.